Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Not joining me today, my friend, colleague, co-host, frenemy, op, Mr. Daly. And that's because his mystery business trip continues. It's just me today, folks. I apologize. But we do have an action-packed show. But before we get started, I do want to apologize. Uh, recording a little bit off rhythm this week. Typically, we like to record our Wednesday, Thursday and get the show out before the weekend. This week, that wasn't possible. We did drop a really great interview, a really great session earlier this week with Megan Schuster of The Ringer. If you haven't checked that out, make sure you do. But I'm sitting here today. It's Saturday, October 14th. I wanted to get in the studio and get something out because there's so much really interesting Formula One news happening. But like I said, it might be a little bit noisy in the background. The family is home. My son's upstairs. He's watching YouTube, playing with tech decks. You know how it is when you've got a five-year-old. Or maybe you don't, but I'll tell you, it's chaotic. Today, a couple of things right from the top. Obviously, a big shout out to Magnus Graves and the entire team at Race Weekend Magazine. I like to bring this up because with every show, we tick closer and closer to the holiday season. And I'm sure there's somebody in your life that would enjoy a wonderful subscription to the second collection, set two, collection two of the Race Weekend Magazine. If you check them out, make sure you use the promo code, coupon code SCUDERIAPOD to get 10% off your subscription. And no podcast would be complete if we didn't shout out our friend Tease and the entire team over at Racing Exclusives. Check out Racing Exclusives if you're looking for some really great F1 memorabilia, of course, all of which comes with an authentic certificate of authenticity. I guess you couldn't really have an inauthentic certificate of authenticity. A couple of other quick reminders before we jump right into the news. The Las Vegas Grand Prix watch party is coming fast. November 18th is like 35 days away from now. If you're interested in coming, please let us know. Slide into our DM, send us an email, a text, however you want to get a hold of us. We're excited to have everybody over and we think we're going to have an awful lot of fun that night. As a reminder though, it is a fundraiser for the Canadian Mental Health Association and we ask everybody to make a $30 donation to the Canadian Mental Health Association in advance of your arrival and you can do that right through the website. And when you RSVP, I'll send you the link to make sure that you know how to do that. Uh, like I said a couple of minutes ago earlier this week, we were blessed to have Megan Schuster on the show. Of course, Megan Schuster is a big part of the ringer. She covers golf. She covers Formula One. She does a lot of great pop culture work. And she also, now that Kevin Clark has left the ringer to go to ESPN, Megan Schuster is now the sole host, uh, the steward behind the ringer F1 show podcast, which of course she hosts quite often with, I think Spanners from Mixed Apex has been a big part of that show the last few months, helping to recap all of the individual 
races. Now, Daly's not here, so we don't have to do a kind of a lot of our formalities and a lot of our back and forth. So we'll jump right into it. But a couple of really cool statistics I saw earlier this week. And again, by saw, I mean, I read on Reddit or Twitter, which is, I think, where most of us get our F1 news these days. But this comes from Reddit user Outlandishness Pure 2. Max has only dropped 41 possible points since the beginning of the season. That means he's only left 8.7 or 9% of all available points on the board. I don't know that we kind of needed to revisit just how dominating he's been. But the next statistic here also from Reddit, and this comes from Steeler Fever 97 the gap between Max and Sergio is bigger and the gap between P1 and P2 is bigger than the gap between P2 and P12 in the driver standing, 211 and 180 points respectively. I don't know, you know, if you presented me with a stat similar to that, that two months ago, I would say, well, that's probably more a reflection of Max's dominance uh, as opposed to Sergio's weakness. I think based on the last three or four Grand Prix, uh, I think this is a, an example of one, Max's dominance, but two, obviously Sergio's weakening performance as the championship has gone along. Now, last race, we didn't get a chance to call this out, but McLaren had a 1.8 second pit stop, the fastest ever Formula One's pit stop, which obviously is remarkable. A couple of other Max Verstappen statistics here before we get into the weekly news. And I feel like this is going to be a Red Bull dominated show. So if you aren't a big Red Bull fan, you know what? Heads up. There is some non-Red Bull news, but I think we're going to talk a lot about Red Bull today. Uh, Most laps led in a single season. This is a pretty interesting statistic. So it's got six drivers here, and I'm going to read from the back. So in 2021, Max Verstappen led 50% of all possible laps. In 2004, Michael Schumacher led 61% of all possible laps. In 2013, Sebastian Vettel also led 60% of all possible laps. Nigel Mansell, and of course that dominant 1992 season, led 67% of all possible laps. In 2011, Sebastian Vettel, again on this list again, four times world champion, probably not a surprise, led 65% of all laps. And so far this season of 991 race laps, Max Verstappen has led 740 of those, equating to a 75% percentage. And the other cool statistic I have here, less a statistic, but more just a, a comparison of Max dominant 19 or 2023 season versus his 2022 season. So far this year, Max has scored 14 race wins versus 11 last year, 16 podiums versus 13 last year, 433 points versus 341, 10 poles versus four poles, and zero DNFs this year versus two DNFs last year. So as much as we thought last year's Max season was remarkable and dominant, this season is just on an entirely different level. And I know that sounds cliche to say, but he's just been phenomenal. And I think the DNFs is a big part of that too, because he simply hasn't made a mistake. And clearly he's been blessed with wonderful machinery and he hasn't had a component fear fail or a failure, or at least not a failure that's necessarily compromised the outcome of a race. I think there's been a few races where there were some close calls with the power unit and things like that. But typically by that point, he's so far in the lead, he can back off the throttle a little bit and coast home. But obviously he's been blessed with some really great reliable machinery, but he's also just not made any meaningful mistakes or at least mistakes that would compromise his ability to close out races in a championship caliber fashion. 
first news story that we have today is about former F1 chief Bernie Eccleston. And Bernie has admitted to fraud, and that's going to come with some very, very significant consequences. And if you're not familiar with Bernie, I highly recommend you Google him, go through his Wikipedia profile, and you'll learn a little bit more about the shady the shady character that he is, both from a kind of a personal perspective and also especially from a business dealings perspective. But according to the race.com, longtime Formula One chief Bernie Eccleston pleaded guilty to fraud in a London court on Thursday, getting a 17-month prison sentence suspended for two years and agreeing to pay six point sorry, not six, agreeing to pay six hundred and fifty-two point six million pounds to the UK tax authorities. Again, according to the race.com, the case followed an HMRC, UK's tax body, investigation over his finances and a false representation by Ecclestone in July 2015 in which he failed to declare a Singapore-based offshore trust that had the equivalent of £400 million in a bank account at the time. Prosecutors said he answered no to the question of whether he had any additional trust beyond one established for his three daughters. The article continues, Eccleston had been due to stand trial next month, but appeared at Southwark Crown Court on Thursday, having changed his plea to guilty and agreed earlier this week to pay, again, a whopping £652.6 million, covering tax, interest, and penalties for 18 tax years between 1994 and 2022 in a civil settlement with HMRC. So I, I think the fact that he committed fraud probably isn't a surprise. Anyone that's followed F1 or is reasonably familiar with Bernie as an individual knows that his business dealings were incredibly, incredibly selfish and very self-serving as they often are. I think maybe the one thing that is a little bit surprising here is that he admitted to guilt, basically admitted and confessed to very significant tax fraud. Now, the question will be whether he ever parts with that money because 652 million pounds is close to a billion dollars Canadian or probably seven or 800 million dollars US that this is a sensational amount of money. And of course, there's also a prison sentence, although it's been suspended a couple of years. And it'll be interesting to see if he ever serves that. But really, I think all of this just serves the purpose to demonstrate just how shady he has been as a human being. And probably no one was more, probably no one was happier that he exited the Formula One business in late 2016, early 2017 than I was, because not only was he fundamentally mismanning the business at the time, it was just, the sport was guilty by association to Bernie, and it was very challenging to defend the support or even to openly admit your support of it simply because he had his tentacles so deeply embedded into the fabric of the sport and all of the decisions that were being made. And it goes far beyond the fact that far beyond the fact that he was so adamant against embracing modern technical capabilities like social media and streaming and things like that. It was just he had some very problematic personal views of the world. And I think oftentimes these would come out in interviews and conversations with the drivers. And certainly it was just time. And the sport has been a revelation in his absence. And for sure, I totally get it. That there would be no modern Formula One championship without him and his foresight and his ability to create the business and build the business around TV money. But by 2016, it was time for him to exit the sport. And it was probably a good time for him to do it. And he left with a very significant significant chunk of change, although probably, I don't know, an eighth 
a seventh, a quarter of that's probably now going to be uh, exiting his bank accounts to compensate the British tax authority for his very flagrant tax fraud. Now, a quick update. Uh, this is a tweet from Chris Medland. Lance Stroll has apologized and has been issued with a written warning from the FIA compliance officer regarding his conduct. And of course, if you remember, after exiting his car at qualifying in Doha, he was very upset through his steering wheel, and it's widely believed, based on the camera footage that we have, although from a poor angle, that he shoved a team member, I believe his... Uh, I believe it was his trainer, uh, but ultimately the FIA says the FIA maintains a zero tolerance stance against misconduct and condemns any actions that may lead to physical harassment. So uh, he publicly apologized. It sounds like he's going to get off with a written warning uh, and the case will be settled and we'll kind of move on from there. Now, I spoke a couple minutes ago. I teased at the idea that there was going to be a lot of Red Bull in this conversation. And we are going to revisit Doha and the Qatar Grand Prix in a little bit because, you you know, we, we talked at the time about the fact that we jumped on the mics really quickly after the Grand Prix, which is usually ill-advised because a race isn't really settled until two or three hours after. And that's partly because it takes time to really, one, digest what has happened. And if there's penalties and sanctions, oftentimes these aren't immediately clear or they'll change. And then sometimes it's really valuable to have feedback from the drivers and the teams about their experiences during the Grand Prix. And, you know, we were able to talk about the race classification and some of the things that happened on the track, but there was a number of things that really only become more apparent subsequent. So we're going to get there. But right now, I want to talk a little bit about Red Bull and the Globo News publication, which I believe is a Brazilian-based publication, uh, had a quote a couple of days ago saying that Horner, Christian Horner, team principal of the Red Bull team, Horner has been trying to get rid of Marco for some time to control the group's Formula One operation. Horner even wanted to get rid of Yuki Sonoda, yielding a check of $10 million paid by Honda. Something that Marco has tried to prevent to avoid future friction with the engine supplier. So we've talked about this ad nauseum. Christian Horner is the boss at Red Bull. He is the team principal. He is the de facto president of the Formula One operations. Helmet Marco wears two hats. One, he's a consultant to the Red Bull Formula One team, although it's relatively unclear what that means. And two, he's the head of the Driver Academy. So, of course, Red Bull has this really rich legacy of developing drivers, although it's been less clear how successful they've been there recently. But that's his second role. One thing that I would acknowledge from the top is that it feels like Helmut Marko gets an awful lot of airtime. And I've said this before, I had a friend that used to work in Austria at Red Bull, and it was very clear within that organization that really only two people could speak on behalf, aside from the drivers, only two people within that organization could speak to the media on behalf and about the team. And that was Christian Horner, and it was Helmut Marko. And increasingly in the last two or three or four years, it feels and it's become very apparent that Helmut's contribution through the media has not been helpful to the team. In fact, at times he's been borderline or possibly just straight up racist and very insensitive with his comments, both directed towards the rest of the paddock and competitors and at his own drivers. And one of the things that I thought in the back of my head so often is, 
why does Christian tolerate this? That this this can't be helpful to the team. That this is just an ongoing distraction. Does does his consulting contribution to the team really offset the problems that he causes by opening his mouth at every single Grand Prix, most notably recent comments about really insensitive comments about one of his own drivers and Sergio Perez. Like, do do his consulting contributions really add that much value that Christian Horner isn't new to running a Formula One team? He's been doing it for decades. He's very good at it and has won countless championships. What is his role? Because if you look at his, what we presume to be his core responsibility, which is managing the development of the young drivers, I don't know how he's doing that when he's at the Grand Prix every single weekend. Should he not be in Japan at the Super Formula Championship? Should he not be touring around Japan to see the F4 championship or the F4 UAE championship or be traveling around to go-kart tracks in the United States trying to identify young talent. Like, I'm not sure how he's being successful there. And I think clearly he's not. In fact, earlier this year, he even acknowledged that it was he that fought for Nick DeVries. And that obviously did not work out for that team. And that's, I think, a rare acknowledgement of a mistake he's made. But clearly, I don't know that he's adding any significant value. So the the quote here, and again, this might just be purely purely made up. It could be nonsense because it's very difficult to substantiate this, but it does reinforce the idea that maybe Christian Horner Christian Horner is beside himself with, with Helmut Marco. And we keep talking about whether Sergio Perez is going to be there long time or long term. What is the what is the runway for Helmut Marco? Because again, I just I think it would be very helpful for that organization to remove him from that operation because I just don't believe he's adding enough value to offset the distraction that he provides through some of his media comments. Now, a couple of other things that I should mention and and acknowledge that earlier this week, there was a number of, I should say low brow, but low profile publications and organizations that were spreading news that suggests that Sergio Perez may be planning to announce his retirement at the at the Mexican Grand Prix and that ultimately Red Bull has made the decision to exit him from their team but they wanted to give him the opportunity to make the announcement himself at his home Grand Prix in a couple of weeks in Mexico City Red Bull according to the German motorsports publication AMUS is full-on denying that there's any truth to this. And ultimately, even if there was, they're kind of pushed into a corner here where a lack of acknowledgement or a lack of denial suggests that maybe there's some truth to it. And if they do admit that it's real, it just creates a media firestorm. So ultimately, I, I don't know what value we can lend to this. But again, the rumor is that he plans to announce his resignation at Mexico uh, in lieu of ultimately being fired by the Red Bull team. So it gives him the opportunity to exit on his own terms. So we have to see if that's going to be true. AMUS also published another interesting story about Sergio Perez a couple of days ago, suggesting that Sergio Perez went to Christian Horner and asked if he could drive the pre-Barcelona RB19, so uh, an earlier iteration of the current car, but that couldn't be honored by the Red Bull team as no team brings two different cars to a Formula One Grand Prix. Now we have another Red Bull, or at least a 
Red Bull adjacent story is that AlphaTauri CEO, Mr. Bayer, uh, of course, Peter Bayer, the new CEO that was hired recently by Christian Horner, he has acknowledged and admitted that the team have in fact selected a new quote unquote identity for 2024. And we've talked so much about the fact that this team plans to reinvent itself, both from a personnel perspective and a car design perspective. But we also know that they're going to rebrand. Of course, for most of their history, they were Torosso. A couple of years ago, they rebranded AlphaTauri, which of course is a clothing label owned by Red Bull that nobody's ever heard of yet, let alone knows where to buy. And if they could find it, it's super expensive. So that hasn't worked out, but it sounds like they intend to partner with a major multinational to put their branding on the car. And we reported a couple of weeks ago, eh, we didn't report. We just read somebody else's report. Uh, but we talked about the fact that that partner, that multinational partner could potentially be a German athletic apparel maker Adidas, which would be a really interesting pivot for a company that obviously uh, is kind of reevaluating or kind of reevaluating its position in the global sports uh, marketplace that obviously their their contribution and their devotion to the football soccer market is is I think in so many ways like the backbone of their sporting business. Uh, they they had a big role in the NBA for many years producing the jerseys, although they've exited that. They still have some NBA players that do exclusive shoe deals. They were until at least until the end of this year supplying the NHL with their jerseys, although they're exiting that deal. It's unclear necessarily what their intents are globally and some of those things could be a cost-cutting measure but if they ultimately do sign up adidas this is very much a new realm for them to be in the in the motorsports world and of course they're not going to be contributing anything other than money which in turn becomes stickers on the car and on the helmets and and stitching on the race suits but it is interesting that they believe that f1 could provide a really strong marketing platform for them it also of course could be a really good way to create some separation like we talked about recently with the Yeezy experiment that while it started extremely strong and was a boon to the profits on their P&L ultimately ended up being a disaster for them with them taking multi-billion dollar write downs on inventory and having to ha go through a very ugly divorce with somebody that was wildly inappropriate for any multinational to associate themselves with of course being Mr. Kanye West but yeah that'll be interesting and I'm super super eager I think that's one of the stories that I'm going to be most fascinated to watch next year is hey what car do they bring? Because we know that they've had some autonomy relative to the sister team, their mother team, the bigger team, Red Bull at Milton Keynes. They've had some autonomy in designing the car. Clearly that hasn't worked for them. Next year, we expect, we expect to see Daniel Ricardo back in that car for a full season. Yuki, we know is going to be back next year. That'll be Wow, I guess year four for the young Japanese driver. Uh, again, based on some things that we've read, part of that could be funding coming from Honda, who is, of course is energized and motivated to have a really talented Japanese car in a car that's powered by a Japanese source, developed and engineered power unit. But it's going to be super fascinating to see what that car looks like next year, both from a brand perspective and a design perspective. And it'll be interesting to see how Daniel, if Daniel is still there and he hasn't been promoted to Red Bull, what that, that could look like next year. Now, I'm going to pivot a little bit away from the teams to talk more about the sport generally and the general health of Formula One. But there was a very interesting article on BBC Sport a couple of days ago, of course, written by Andrew Benson, the chief F1 writer. And it's titled, FIA President Mohammed Ben Salem wants more teams and fewer races. And the article is interesting because there's a general acknowledgement that there's an ongoing turf war between the two bodies that are responsible for 
administering and bringing us fans the Formula One championship every single year. And it's very, very clear. And I don't need to restate our position or my kind of specific, honest, personal opinion here, but it's very clear that there's some discord and a lack of alignment between the vision of the future of F1 from an FIA perspective, of course, the governing body, and they claim, and we read a quote last week about the fact that Mohammed bin Salem keeps reinforcing that, hey, we own the championship, we're the landlord, they're just leasing it, referring to FOM or Liberty, and Liberty, who believes that, hey, we made this massive financial investment in buying the commercial rights from Bernie Eccleston, this is our championship, the teams are aligned with us, we take on all of the financial risk. But there were some really interesting comments recently. And of course, these come in light of the fact that two weeks ago, or a little under two weeks ago, the FIA had basically rubber stamped the Andretti bid. And that's problematic because one, FOM, Liberty, weren't open to the idea of doing an expressions of interest protocol or process earlier this year. And the FIA went ahead and did that. And Mohammed bin Salem, of course, the president of the FIA, has been enrolled now for 18 months, coming up to two years. Of course, he took the role in early 22 on the heels of the fiasco that was the 2021 Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Uh, but he made some very interesting comments that kind of reinforced the fact that there's some discord here and he says saying no to a team which has been approved by the FIA it's very hard and I think this comment just reinforces the fact that one he believes that ultimately the FIA are the true custodians of the Formula One championship less so Liberty and and certainly that you know what in having made that decision FOM doesn't really have any meaningful authority to discount the bid or to turn it down. And obviously, if FOM or Liberty were to find a way to not partner Andretti into the commercial arrangement that is the Grand Prix, we would talk about immediate litigation because it's believed this would actually break countless EU laws because there's been rulings on the role of Formula One and the ability for teams to gain entry so long as they can show that they would add value and not subtract value from the championship. But Mohammed bin Salem obviously knew this and in engaging with that protocol, that process uh, to enable teams to supply a bid to F1 to join the championship, I think he obviously knew that he was going to put or the FIA were going to put the FOM and Liberty in a very, very difficult situation. And over the last couple of weeks, you've heard countless team principals come out against this. And I think even one of the teams that was very much in support of the bid in Alpine, I think their position has changed, especially with Laurent Rossi being... Uh, I guess they demoted to counting staples in the basement of the Enstone facility. And of course, Otmar Snafnauer being exited from the Formula One team and Luca DeMeo taking a stronger position within that organization. Of course, he's the CEO of the Renault group. But I think that the little support that they did have within the teams has been eroded now that the reality is beginning to set in that this is possibly or probably going to happen. Now, he continues... If you say, this is Mohammed bin Salem, if you say, what is my dream? It is to fill up the 12 team slots and have one U.S. team from an OEM and a power unit and a driver from there and then go to China, maybe, and ask for the same thing and do it. He continues on, and this is pretty interesting, but you cannot force Andretti GM to buy another team just because the current owners may want to sell. 
I won't mention the names, but they were after me to go on and convince GM to do that. It's not my job. I was not elected to do that. I'm not a broker. He continues, we are allowed to have 12 teams in the rules. Some of the teams said, oh, it will be crowded. Really? We are already running a Hollywood team with us. He said, of course, referring to the Brad Pitt F1 team that's been traveling with the uh, the championship this year for filming purposes. He continues, the circuits are supposed to have enough garages and space for 12 teams. I think the number of races is too much rather than the number of teams. We need more teams and fewer races. The teams are looking at the piece of cake. I understand their worries, but our worries are different. Ooh, pretty interesting comments. Oh, and finally, there's a couple of other ones here that I should probably get to because they're pretty fire. But he also says, we are not a service provider. We own the championship. We leased it. We are the landlords. So that has to be respected. Also, my intention was never to embarrass or to put someone in a corner. Liberty or FOM, of course, he's referring to. I'm here for the spirit of the sport. So there's some remarkable comments here from Mohammed bin Salem. Again, I'm not going to take the side of the FOM. I'm not going to take the side of the FIA. It's just interesting as an observer to watch the dynamics between the two. And a couple of things here. One, he keeps reinforcing and acknowledging that his belief is they own the championship. But I think FOM and Liberty would probably feel the same way that they own the championship since since they forked over $4 billion to Bernie on his way out and they own all of the financial risk associated with the championship. Like the FIA doesn't assume any financial risk here right that they're really just being paid a fee to administer the championship but again so much so much interesting stuff here and like oh my god i'm gonna walk this back so one they initiated the expressions of interest protocol and again i'm not on the side of the fia i'm not on the side of the fom it's just it's really fun to kind of sit back as an observer and watch this but one the fia initiates the fom uh sort of the fia expressions of interest process which was clearly not uh something that the FOM or Liberty had wanted any part of. He's also here now indicating that as the president of the FIA, the the body that governs and regulates the championship, that he believes there's too many races, which flies directly directly in the face of the objectives which of Liberty, which is to have as many races as possible. Because, of course, the more races you have, the greater the check you get from the TV, the television providers. Because if you create more content for them, which is races, uh, you get more money because they can sell more advertising to their partners. So, of course, it's good for them from a TV perspective. And then every time you sign a contract with a new race organizer, that's a 30, 40, 50, 60 million million dollar check you get to cash. So his comments here is, hey, I want more teams, which the FOM doesn't want because they don't want to upset the existing teams. And two, we should have less races, which is fundamentally opposed to the direction of FOM, which would love to have 25 races. So that's remarkable. And then finally, again, just restating his position about we own the championship, we own the championship, we own the championship. Again, these comments aren't completely divorced from some of the things that he was saying earlier in the championship, which ultimately resulted in the FOM issuing a very strict letter uh, indicating you're not in compliance with the spirit of our partnership. And of course, at that point, he kind of backed away from the championship. But some of these comments are really, really, really fascinating. And it just seems like if not a power play, then certainly there's a turf war. And I'm sure there's people at the Liberty offices in Atlanta, Georgia, at least I'm assuming that's where the offices are. But I'm assuming there's some people within that hierarchy 
below and possibly including CEO Stefano Domenicali that are just livid at these comments that at a time when F1 should be celebrating its successes and exposure and the number of people tuning in on streaming platforms and attending the races, that there's such a separation between the two bodies that oversee the sport. It's just absolutely fascinating. And again, the FOM Liberty, with really with respect to that statement they issued a couple of months ago about the fact that the FIA might have been in non-compliance from a, a legal perspective in terms of challenging, because remember, he made some comments recently or earlier this year challenging the valuation of the sport and he thought it was too high. It's just it's fascinating that he could continue to make these comments and that FOM chooses not to respond. But I think they also understand that if we were to respond, it's possibly just going to escalate that. And then all of a sudden, the F1 headlines are us not talking about, hey, look how great Liam Lawson was in his debut at F1. But wow, look at these comments and this battle ongoing in the media between Stefano Domenicali and Mohammed bin Salam. So again, something to continue to continue watching from this point forward, as if we weren't already. Folks, let's take a quick break, and we'll be back in uh, 30 seconds. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Mark Hamilton. We're going to jump into another story now. We're going to talk a little bit about Alpine and Andretti. And earlier in the show, I talked a little bit about the fact that one of the teams that had previously been very warm to the idea of Andretti joining the championship has cooled on the idea a little bit. Of course, the two teams that were vocally, verbally supportive of Andretti's bid were, of course, McLaren, led by Zach Brown, and also Renault slash Alpine. And Alpine, in fact, had a very financial motive to see Andretti join the grid, and it was because they had a pre-contract with the American, the aspiring American team, to supply them with power Sports Illustrated and a number of other publications are reporting that due to the fact that Andretti wasn't able to meet a conditional F1 entry date, which apparently was some time ago, although different media outlets are reporting different dates, because they weren't able to achieve an entry into Formula One based on a certain date, that that pre-contract is now null and fully void. That said, though, although the pre-agreement the pre-contract is no longer active, Alpine themselves and Renault haven't fully out revisiting the idea of supplying the American team. In the meanwhile, it's being reported that 
At this point, those conversations are largely on pause until such time as the FOM or Liberty giving the Andretti Group the stamp of approval. So a couple of takeaways here. One is that things have changed at Alpine, right? That previously the leadership was Laurent Rossi, who was overseeing the Alpine Group, the road car division, the Formula One team. And we had Otmar Staffnauer, an American, overseeing the Formula One team. Laurent Rossi, largely out of the picture now. Nobody's really clear what he's doing. I joke that he's counting staples in the basement of the Enstone factory. And of course, Otmar, completely gone from the organization entirely and out of F1, presumably on gardening leave for some amount of time. So there's been a leadership change there. Now, of course, they have a new team principal, an interim team principal in Bruno Famine. And of course, it seems as though Luca DeMeo, the CEO of the broader Renault group, is having more, I would say, input into the operation of the team, it's possible that the two of them have a very different perspective on whether they want to supply another team. Now, there is an interesting rule in F1 about power units, and the rule states that if a company, and again, it can be a team like Red Bull who are developing their own power units, although I always, I keep forgetting they're doing it now in partnership with Ford, but if you have a team that develops their own power unit internally, which is quite rare, or you have a manufacturer like an OEM that is manufacturing power units, if they are supplying only one team and another team has a need for a source of power units, that manufacturer, that that developer, the manufacturer of the power unit is actually obligated to provide a supply of power units to that other team. Now, if they're already supplying two teams, they are under absolutely no obligation to negotiate or provide power units to any other teams. So in the case of LP, it was nice that there was a pre-contract in place, but as they weren't actually supplying any other team other than their Enstone-based works team, they were technically or would technically have been obligated to enter into negotiations with Andretti Anyways, so all of that said, as much as there is this, I would say, tacit desire to revisit this idea or the contract and supply of power units, uh, once the FOM admission has been granted, they technically were going to be obligated to do that anyways. The next subject or topic is, in hindsight, probably something that we should open the show with. And I say that because oftentimes when there is spillover from the Grand Prix the weekend before, we typically open the show with it. Hey, look, you know what? We did the race review and we talked about these subjects, but there's still some things that are percolating in the press and some things that are percolating in the broader the broader F1 community. But there's certainly a story that picked up a lot of momentum and a lot of steam following the Grand Prix last weekend. And it was specifically related to the heat and the humidity with which the drivers were racing in. And if you remember, Logan Sargent retired during the race. And if you remember, Lance Stroll all but collapsed when he got out of his car following the conclusion of the Grand Prix. And this was all largely a symptom of the fact that the drivers were being expected to race in extremely warm and extremely humid conditions. And I talked about this during the race preview that this region of the world gets extremely hot during the summer and it gets extremely humid. And it gets extremely humid because the Gulf countries sit on the edge of the Gulf. And the Gulf is an extremely shallow body of salt water and it heats up and it creates humidity and it gets very, very sticky during the summer. And there's a reason why a lot of people that live in the region vacation during the summer because they want to escape. Now, in the winter, that humidity largely dies off and it's still warm and it's still sunny and the conditions are beautiful. 
But unfortunately, and it's been reported that this was an unseasonably warm October weekend, but knowing the region, it probably should have been expected and probably wasn't that misaligned with historical norms. But ultimately, the debate that raged in the hours and the days that followed the Grand Prix was the fact that the drivers were largely subjected to unsafe driving conditions, so much so that the FIA themselves have issued a statement. And they issued this statement just a couple of days ago, and it reads, the FIA notes with concern that the extreme temperature and humidity during the 2023 FIA Formula One Qatar Grand Prix had an impact on the well-being of the drivers. While being elite athletes, they should not be expected to compete under conditions that could jeopardize their health or safety. The safe operation of the car is, at all times, the responsibility of the competitors. However, as with other matters relating to safety, such as circuit infrastructure and car safety requirements, the FIA will take all reasonable measures to establish and communicate acceptable parameters in which competitions are held. As such, the FIA has begun an analysis into the situation in Qatar to provide recommendations for future situations of extreme weather conditions. It should be noted that while next year's edition of the Qatar Grand Prix is scheduled later in the year, when temperatures are expected to be lower, the FIA prefers to take material action now to avoid a repeat of this scenario. And it concludes, a number of measures will be discussed at the upcoming medical commission meeting in Paris. Measures may include guidance for competitors, research into modifications more for more efficient airflow in the cockpit and recommendations for changes to the calendar to align with acceptable climactic conditions amongst others. Research from other series such as cross-country events and extreme climates will be examined for potential applications to circuit events. The FIA's commitment to closer cooperation between technical safety and medical departments under the leadership of the FIA president will facilitate this process. So I think there's a, a broad now acknowledgement that the drivers were facing unsafe conditions. And the FIA hasn't said that the race shouldn't have taken place. And I think the teams are very cautious to say that themselves. But a number of different publications have been much, 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 much more forceful with the topic. And I think the challenge here is that these drivers accept some degree of risk when they get in a Formula One car. And the FIA has done absolute wonders in the last three decades to make this sport safer, safer for the spectators and safer for the drivers. And they should be fully commended for that. The reality is those conditions can become more unpredictable based on the climate and based on the weather conditions on that day that, you know what, it could be hot and dry, but it could be sandy and dusty and that reduces grip. And I think the drivers acknowledge that they can race in wet conditions, which of course greatly minimizes grip and also visibility. And I think the drivers are willing to sign up to that. But that said, we've seen cases, including Belgium in 2022, where the FIA ultimately just say, look, you know what? It's it's too extreme. It's too unsafe. We cannot subject our drivers to that. And I think the debate, the question is, should somebody have stepped in during the race weekend last weekend and done the exact same thing, specifically in the Grand Prix? Because I think when you're talking about qualifying, the drivers are in and out of the car. They can cool down. They can get liquids. During practice, they're in and out of the car. And even the sprint race, which is a much, much shorter affair, probably weren't representative of what the drivers were going to encounter 
when they got in the cars for a 90 minute Formula One Grand Prix for 50 plus laps around that circuit. Now, the reality is, and in hindsight, when you go back and listen to the radio, these drivers were struggling. And in hindsight, probably more than a few should have in the spirit of protecting themselves and in the spirit of protecting the integrity of the safety of the other drivers, they should have gone back to the pits. And we were seeing this because they were not only saying so on the radio that they were struggling with heat, they couldn't stay cool, and they were overheating. But the reality too is that in those extremely hot conditions, drivers suffer heat stroke very quickly. One, because the heat itself has an impact, but the cars themselves, and I cannot stress this enough, are an oven. The driver is basically sitting on top of the engine and they're not, but it's immediately behind them. And there's a tremendous amount of heat. soak, heat that goes through the firewall into the cockpit and it absolutely sinks into them. The other challenge with this circuit is that in a lot of places where the conditions are hot, drivers find a way to cool themselves down on the straight. They've got a long straight or a sequence of long straights. They can get their gloves up. They can cool their hands. They can take that small, minuscule, microscopic break that helps them refocus on the corners ahead. And that's really challenging at the circuit because it just turns in on itself over and over and over again, and they don't have that opportunity. The other challenge too, when it comes to heat stroke is there's a couple of symptoms here. One is that you start vomiting and multiple drivers admitted that they were throwing up in their helmets and also the fact that you can pass out. And I can't even imagine the outcome the potential consequence of a driver passing out in a car traveling at two or 300 kilometers an hour to help better quantify what the drivers were experiencing. A number of them post-race suggested that temperatures in the cockpit were as high as 60 to 80 degrees Celsius. And I, I'm not smart enough to be able to quickly and effectively convert that into Fahrenheit, but suffice it to say, it's probably unlike anything most of us have ever experienced. Now, uh, Josh Suttle over at the race.com had a really great article and he references a couple of things I'm going to quote here from his article. He says, all 20 drivers undergo extensive training to race in extreme heat and humidity, receiving help from experts such as Dr. Chris Taylor, Tyler from the University of Roehampton, London, who has supported McLaren's drivers to train to race in extreme conditions. And he has a great quote here. It's one of those things that's a bit of an inconvenient truth that these guys are 20 of the best drivers in the world and they're impacted, which means it's not something you can write off as like other times being unprepared or undertrained or underfunded or anyone lacking experience. Dr. Taylor told the race speaking shortly before the FIA announced its plan. He continues, Sunday was a near miss for the FIA, which would have had dire consequences if there was a loss of consciousness or something like that as a result of the heat. He continues, I no Logan Sargent stopped, which was a sensible thing. But who is to say if those drivers were fighting for something, if they were fighting for a driver's championship, would they have stopped so easily? There's definitely a conversation for the FIA to have. Now, Josh Siddle continues, and, and I like this point. He says, the FIA acknowledging that while the safe operation of the cars is at all times the responsibility of the competitors, they should not be expected to compete under conditions that could jeopardize their health or safety is a significant admission and certainly one that I agree with. He also says that Dr. Tyler's point about the context of Sargent's race when he retired is an important antidote to the cries of, but why didn't the drivers park if they couldn't handle the heat? And I think that's a great point, right? That look, Logan Sargent's out there. He's not competing for a championship. He's not competing for 
points during that race that the risk to him was relatively low. And I, I think we know we've talked a lot about whether his seat is safe next year, but I think he demonstrated um, a general awareness of the outcome. And he, he said he was sick. He probably wasn't able to focus at all. But how many other drivers were in the exact same place that he was? In fact, we know a lot of them were because a lot of them acknowledged how ill they were in the car. And Josh Suttle makes a really great point in this article that ultimately the FIA has to treat extreme heat like it does extreme rain. And this is especially an especially tangible point because one, we're racing more in cities, in countries where there is extreme heat. But furthermore, we know we're living amidst a period of significant climate change. And even places that may have had more moderate to climates and temperatures in the past are only going to get hotter and hotter and that ultimately the FIA needs to treat extreme heat in the same way that they do extreme rain that just because just because the risk isn't visible in front of you doesn't like it is with rain or slow or sleet although of course we're never going to face snow or sleet in, in Formula One but just like rain which is visible in front of you you need to be able to treat extreme heat in the same manner because it also poses a significant risk to the drivers on the track. Now, in the days since the event took place, a, a number of people have certainly chosen to weigh in from drivers to media pundits, uh, some of them presenting pretty, I would say, uh, fair and, and honest criticism of the fact that the race took place at all. Uh, a number of others suggesting like Josh Suttle does that the FIA needs to continue to look at or begin to look at extreme weather conditions like heat as they do rain because again it presents so much risk to drivers. But there were also some very I would say ill-advised and perhaps not insensitive but just generally Oh, poor takes on the matter. And, and I'm going to share a comment here from Martin Brundle. Martin Brundle says, It's races like Qatar and very rainy days, which make F1 drivers look the heroes and athletes they are. Absolutely don't buy into the weak view. We shouldn't put them through this kind of challenge. Check out Senna in Brazil, Stuart or Rainy Nürburgring, Lauda post-crash, etc., etc. When I first saw this comment, I thought it was a f***ing joke. Like, I, I seriously did, that it was so absurd and so poor that I couldn't believe that this was his his honest take, that he believes that one of the dimensions or the requirements of being an F1 driver is that they should be expected and unnecessarily be expected to race in extreme weather conditions. For what? For what reason? If you can... If you can pit the cars for a couple of hours while the track dries out or the rain lessens, if you can bring out the red flag when the conditions get too wet, if you can bring out a red flag when you literally have drivers retiring because of extreme heat or because they're vomiting in their helmets, why is that a bad thing? And why does that reflect poorly on the drivers? It's just total nonsense. And in fairness, Martin Brundle wasn't the only one with an opinion like this. But the reality is this isn't football and it's not basketball. A mistake on the basketball court is not going to result in somebody dying. A mistake on a Formula One track could result in multiple deaths. Just a terrible terrible, terrible take. Now, Fernando Alonso, of course, the legendary two times world champion, also had some comments. He says it was a surprise, the heat, to be honest, because it was not that bad in free practice. Maybe it was windy or something, and today we missed that wind or something, that ventilation. It was 
extreme. We need to see if in the future there is any solution. And in some extreme conditions, we can agree on delaying the start or whatever. Valtteri Bottas, and this is an article from motorsport.com, agreed that the 2021 Qatar GP, which was held in cooler conditions, was much less extreme. Says Bottas, yeah, there was a big difference. Even if it's three degrees, when it gets hotter in the car than your body temperature, then that's not good news. Any hotter than this would not be safe anymore. Now, of course, the last time we were in Qatar, and this was the second time, it was much later in the year. The good news is if we look forward to the 2024 calendar, this race takes place from November 29th to December 1st. So six weeks later, and I can tell you, and I can promise you from personal experience, that will be wonderful. Those are perfect racing conditions. We've been racing in November, late November in in Abu Dhabi since 2009. There will be no issues. But the reality is the FIA and Formula One cannot allow this to happen again. They cannot allow the drivers to be subjected to these conditions because left to their own devices, most of them, especially who are racing for something, a contract, a championship, points, prize money, personal pride, they will not retire. And they probably don't necessarily understand where that limit is between consciousness and not being conscious anymore. And when you're not conscious in a car that's going two or 300 kilometers an hour, you're talking about potential death. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Now on to somewhat sunnier news, and we have a couple more news stories to get to before we wrap up the show. The last, I think, before the return of the elusive Mr. Daly, but according to Keith Collantine over at racefans.net, the FIA and F1 have confirmed Pirelli will continue as the World Championship's official tire supplier for three more years beginning in 2025. And he writes, Pirelli will also continue to supply tires for F1's leading official support series, F2 and F3. The FIA invited manufacturers to apply to become the three-series tire supplier in March. Pirelli is understood to have beaten a rival bid from previous tire supplier Bridgestone. Another former F1 tire supplier, Michelin, declined to respond to the tender, saying that it did not want to create a product which met the FIA's requirement that it be designed to degrade in performance. So two things I want to touch on here. One is that Bridgestone has actually responded to their unsuccessful bid to become the exclusive supplier for F2, F3, and F1. And not in the way that you would expect, but I'm going to kick that that story down the road a couple of weeks until Daly's back because I want to have that conversation with them. But I do want to respond to Michelin's lack of interest in applying to become the exclusive tire supplier for these three very prestigious championships and just say, I agree that Pirelli is tasked with a very, very challenging job that FIA and Formula One come to them 
repeatedly in season, out of season, year after year, and asked them to redesign the tires. And they asked them to redesign the tires in a couple of ways. One, because they continue to change the cars, power units, aerodynamics, size, shape, dimensions, and weight. And when you do those things, you have to re-engineer the structure of the tire. The other thing that Pirelli is required to do is that, as we all know, F1 has a rule, which is every team has to compete on two different compounds, or every driver has to compete on two different compounds of tire. Of course, there's some exceptions for things like wet conditions when you can run a race on a wet or an intermediate tire. But generally speaking, teams have to pit at least once and swap compounds. So you start on a soft, you can switch to a medium. You can start on a hard, switch to a medium, and go to a soft. Regardless of what your strategy is, you have to run two compounds. The other thing thing that's interesting about the current arrangement is that Pirelli was asked and is continually asked to engineer tires with artificial tire life. And that means that they're being asked to design tires whose compound will effectively drop off a cliff at a certain point. And this is largely designed to generate engineer, inject a degree of excitement and strategy into the race. That if a driver knew that, hey, I'm starting on a medium tire and it's going to have 80% of the performance after 52 laps and I don't have to pit, I'm just going to go for it and manage that tire. But what the drivers do know is I have a medium tire and it's probably going to drop off a cliff after 22 laps, but depending on the surface, or I'm going to start on a fresh soft and it's going to drop off a cliff after 12 or 15 laps. And what Michelin is saying here is that, look, Pirelli's perfectly capable of designing a medium tire that'll go 52 laps. They can design a soft that could probably go the entire balance of the race, depending on the conditions and the circuit and things like that, but that they're being asked by the FIA in Formula One to engineer tires that are specifically designed to degrade at a rate that forces strategy and changes. I get it, and I think we're all conditioned to this now that, hey, look, it's going to last X, it's going to last Y, but it's important to know that Pirelli's perfectly capable of designing compounds that can run much last longer and with much more durability and with much more stickiness and adhesion than they currently do. So it's it's interesting. and. Again, I think in a perfect world, teams could do whatever they wanted from a tire strategy perspective, but I think based on the technology that these tire companies have, they could probably design some very sticky tires that could last an entire race, and then all of a sudden, teams don't have to pit, which takes that entire element of strategy out of the race, and what does that do to the interest in an individual Grand Prix? That the pit stop and the strategy and the tire changes are a big part of F1. And I think left to their own devices, these tire companies would design really great, really robust, really sticky tires and, and kind of use that as a marketing tactic uh, for their for their road cars and their road tires. But the reality is I get where Michelin's coming from and I totally understand why they wouldn't want to join the Formula One circus. The final story tonight is based on an article from therace.com, which itself references a Brazilian publication, Metropole. But if you remember, uh, some time ago now, either late last year or earlier this year, Brazilian Formula One former world champion, Nelson Piquet, received a very significant fine due to having used some wildly inappropriate language on multiple occasions when referring to Lewis Hamilton. And the courts, uh, I think the court case was brought forward by some human rights group, had sided with the human rights group and argued that the words themselves were wildly inappropriate. One was extremely homophobic and one was very, very racist. Well, 
As it turns out, subsequent to receiving the fine, this case has been working its way through the court system and now a major federal court, and I'll just quickly quote here, though his initial appeal had been denied, the Court of Justice of the Federal District and Territories, the Federal District being one of the country's 27 federative units, and specifically the one that includes Brasilia, has canceled the fine. As per Metropoles, PK's words have now been deemed a mockery, but not rising to the level of hate speech. The explanation of the word, again, I'm not going to say the word, but the explanation of the use of the word, despite it being riddled with subtle and voluntary racist inspiration, was accepted. Furthermore, and writes TheRace.com, remarkably, the homophobic nature of the other offending comment was also apparently disputed by the court as this description could also theoretically relate to a practice in a heterosexual relationship. So now one of the great benefits of the show is we've been able to build a community of listeners around the world, and we have many listeners in Brazil. And I reached out to a couple of folks that A, live in Brazil, and B, speak fluent Portuguese because I wanted to get their take on these words. And they said that, well, they're certainly used, though not commonly in the year 2023, they are wildly inappropriate and that virtually any citizen in that country would understand how wildly inappropriate they are. Now, unfortunately, the court has suggested or implied otherwise, the the latest court case, at least the federal trial. But that doesn't diminish the fact that in the people that I've spoken to, these words are wildly and wildly inappropriate. And unfortunately, Nelson Piquet is going to get off scot-free here. And I think one of the things that's really alarming about this is that these weren't comments that he made in a back room smoking a cigar with a couple of his friends, uh, admonishing Lewis Hamilton for his achievements. It's, uh, again, It's not like this was a hot mic moment. And when I say hot mic, it's somebody making a comment to somebody else or under their breath, not realizing that the microphone in front of them is being recorded. And and the reality is he, he sat down here and made these comments knowing that they would be published. That these weren't, again, something that he said in a back smoke filled room, you know, hating on Lewis Hamilton because he was able to achieve seven world championships. So again, I, I don't want to get too much into this because I get a little bit worked up, but I, I thought the the initial fine was really a, a reference or a frame of reference or a benchmark of what good could look like when somebody that has a tremendous amount of notoriety and has achieved great success in their own life, who then begins to adopt language that can perpetuate or instill hatred amongst other people because again whether he was joking or not whether he didn't understand the severity of those words simply using them normalizes that type of language and that's just totally inappropriate especially for somebody of Nelson PK's stature. So on that, thank you everybody for listening in. I know this episode was a little bit choppy and full disclosure, I actually had to record it over a number of different hours, hopping back and forth, trying to juggle a bunch of different things in my life. I'm actually going to be going away on business this week. So it looks like Mr. Daly is going to be sitting down to do a solo show this coming Thursday. So you've had five straight Mark Hamilton shows. You're going to get an all daily show. I'm going to put together an agenda for him, flip that over to him later this week, and he's going to sit down and record that for you on Wednesday or Thursday. And then, of course, he and I hopefully will be able to jam together this coming 
I guess this coming weekend because I think we've got a triple header on our hands. Oh my gosh, a lot of work. But the championship is incredibly almost over, right? We've got we've got Austin, we've got Mexico, we've got Brazil, we've got Las Vegas, and we've got Abu Dhabi. We just have five races left. And of course, I think the most intriguing of all of those, of course, is going to be Las Vegas, simply because we don't necessarily know what that's going to look like. And I don't have it in front of me right now, but earlier today, I saw somebody on Reddit that had put together a breakdown of the average temperatures at 10 p.m. on a Saturday night on that date in November. And the temperatures are borderline frigid. So we talk about Las Vegas being dry and warm in the desert. Well, it's going to be extremely cold, and it's going to be very interesting to see how driver. In fact, for sure, with the exception of some of the wet races this year, it will be the coldest race on the calendar, which, of course, is a little difficult to process when you think Vegas, heat, desert, Vegas, heat, desert. But it's going to be extremely cold, and it's going to be interesting to see how much grip the drivers can get in those tires, like how much heat can they produce, um, and then what type of speeds can they take this track at? Because, again, your speed is a entirely dependent on the heat in your tires. And likewise, you really need to get heat in the brakes as well to make them effective because a cold carbon ceramic brake rotor is totally useless. So it's going to be super, super fascinating. And of course, that's when we're going to be hosting the Grand Prix watch party from my house. So if you're interested in coming, please let us know. We're super pumped to potentially see you there. Until next time, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Hopefully, we'll get back to our normal rhythm in the next week or so, so you don't just have me and you have maybe less choppy shows. But thanks again. Talk to you all soon. Bye for now. I feel like a locomotive sipping, drinking Arizona. Mixtape just around the corner. Did a lot in California. Can't wait to drop this on you. Yeah, they gon' have fun with that. Smash like song. And my song's gon' break through like a running back.